living God that he has allowed us the opportunity to enter his house with praise and hymns of adoration and uh, pray one for another, especially as the word of God goes forth this day. I'd like to begin by asking you to open your Bibles with us to the Old Testament book of Job in Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11. We'd like to title our study this morning together, Searching for the Unsearchable God. Searching for the Unsearchable God. Most of us are acquainted with the struggle of Job, his testing, his trials, and, and the depth of suffering that he endured. And in the midst of that suffering, he goes through many of the very same emotions that you and I do when we pass through deep waters. And sometimes our view of God, sometimes our fellowship with him, appears to be so elusive. Yet the word of God commands us to seek unto the Lord. Zophar had a response to Job that I want to begin with this morning. He asked a question in verse 7 of Job chapter 11. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Here, Zophar is stating unequivocally the incomprehensibility of God in his essence, in his attributes. It's, it's impossible for the finite mind that we as human beings have to even begin to understand a glimpse of the attributes that pertain to God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11 verse 33, Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is a, a very interesting paradox in the Word of God. In the Old and the New Testament, we'll find this morning, most of our remarks will be from the letter of 1 Corinthians, but I want to begin in the Old Testament to show us that this is a struggle of God's people in every age, in the Old and New Testament. The constant searching of the, of the human condition, searching for satisfaction, uh, searching for peace, uh, searching for love, acceptance. Maybe that search is involved in uh, looking for a financial stability, uh, look, looking for a companion with which we can do life together, searching. Man, in his earliest moments of existence, 
is called to a constant journey of searching. And Zophar is drawing from that human experience, and he's saying to Job, how can you search the unsearchable? Later in this same chapter, in this same uh, book, go with me over to chapter 23. Listen to this language. And see if this might parallel any of your experiences with the unsearchable God. Job said this in the midst of his heaviest load. He says uh, in chapter 23, verse 2, he says, Even today my complaint is bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. In other words, he's come to the end of his rope. He's looked everywhere for comfort and solace. He's looked everywhere he can look for answers. And he says in verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No. He will put his strength in me. He's saying in these words that I can only find what I'm looking for in God himself. There the righteous might dispute with him, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. I'm looking ahead, but I can't see him. And I look backwards, and I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, to the left I look, can't see him there. To the right I look, he hides himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. Verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. All of the experience of Job is boiled down to that one simple truth. That there is a divine purpose behind all of the experiences that I endure in this life. There's a sovereign will. There's a sovereign power that is over me. In Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 29, Moses wrote these words. He said, the secret things belong unto God. But that which is revealed belongs unto us and unto our children. There are things that God knows and does that are totally unknown to us. We can't explain it. We can't understand it. But we as Job must come to the conclusion that even though I cannot understand all that God is up to, and I can't understand what God is doing, whether it's in my own life, my family's life, or my nation, even though I can't explain those things, I'm going to settle back and trust in Him. I'm, I'm going to trust in Him. It's kind of like the little boy that uh, Charles Spurgeon mentioned in one of his sermons 
uh, Charles Spurgeon was talking about a little boy that was flying a kite. And in England, you know, they have a lot of clouds, a lot of rainy days. And it was a cloudy, rainy day, and this little boy was sitting on the curb. And he had his uh, kite, and the kite was above the cloud. And the little boy was holding on to the string. And Mr. Spurgeon came to the little boy and says, Son, how do you know that that's, that kite is even still there? He said, Well, sir, every once in a while I, I feel a tug on the other end. You know, a lot of life is that way. The clouds come. The storms billow. The hard times hit us. And we can't see God. And we can't see what He's doing and what He's uh, seeking to accomplish through all of this heartache and, and suffering. But then we feel a tug. A tug in our hearts that let us know that our Heavenly Father cares. He knows what we're going through. And He cares about us. But this morning, it's a strange paradox. Because here we're commanded to seek after God over and over and over again. Seek after the Lord. Seek after the Lord. Seek after the Lord. And yet, so many of the verses in Scripture tell us we can't find Him. Not in His fullness. Not in His brilliance. Not in His great glory. You're going to see some Scriptures like that this morning. And you're going to... You're going to relate to them because I relate to them. And I think in the human experience, we relate to it in this context. I want you to, for instance, go with me to the Psalms of David. We could go to many Psalms, but one of them that came to me this morning particularly was the 76th, no, the 77th Psalm. Well, 76 and 77 go together. But watch, watch what David says in Psalm chapter 77. He says, um, let, let's just back up to verse 1. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. Aren't you glad that God is a prayer hearing God? Aren't you glad of that this morning? In the day of my trouble. What? You, you mean those that trust in the Lord have days of trouble? Oh, yes. It's for you, too. He says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. Notice what he's doing. He's searching. He's searching. I sought the Lord. My sore ran, ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You ever been overwhelmed? You ever gone through an experience where it was overwhelming, like you were drowning? Thou holdest mine eyes waking, can't sleep at night. I am so troubled, I cannot even speak. Have you ever been there? I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. Now watch verse 6. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. David, 
What are you searching after? Listen to verse 7. Will, will the Lord cast all forever? And will he be favorable no more? Have you, ever, have you ever gone through something in your life that you feel like you've blown it so bad that God wouldn't have anything to do with you? You've uh, sinned away your grace. Uh, you've fallen so far down that even God doesn't know where you're at. Have you ever been in a position like that? David was. David was. He says in verse 8, Is his mercy clean, gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? In other words, I've sinned so much that that promise doesn't uh, hold for me. It negates any goodness that God would bestow upon me because after all I'm a sinful man or a sinful person and I've, I've, I've gone beyond the line, I've gone over the line, transgression, I've gone over the line that God has drawn. Verse 9, hath God forgotten to be gracious? Now these are, I believe, rhetorical questions, but they're sincere. Um, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies toward me? Hmm. And I said, listen carefully. <laughs> and I said, this is my infirmity. This is my weakness. This is, this is my inadequacy. Th this is my fault. You see, a lot of people, when bad things happen, they begin to blame God. Have you ever talked to people like that? I have. Oh, yeah, yeah, I used to do the church thing. Yeah, when I was young. Yeah, I did that. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, then life happens, and you, you, you uh, go through a divorce, or you, you lose a child to leukemia. You uh, see uh, one of your best friends slaughtered or killed. Um, you go into war. And you see the atrocities there and the orphans and, and the widows that are created by war. And, and you come home and you're an atheist because you know that if there was a God, he wouldn't allow things like that to happen. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? I have several times. Have you ever heard someone play uh, a musical piece uh, by Mozart? Or uh, Brahm, and they miss a note. Have you ever been to an orchestra where they 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 made mistakes in in their presentation and had to stop? The you know the director does this. Let's start back again because they missed a page. Have you ever seen anything like that? Do you blame Mozart when somebody misplays his notes? Do you blame Brahm when somebody makes a mistake in the uh, note scale that they're playing on a piano? Of course not. You say, that's ridiculous. Why would we blame them? They wrote it correctly, and the people that were playing the instruments are the ones that messed up. Why would we blame the writer? Good question. When things go wrong, when things are mistaken, 
and bad choices are made, are we going to blame God? God wrote the story correctly. God wrote the hymn, the songs, as it should be played. What David is coming to understand is that any bad thing or any uh, sorrowful thing or any troublous thing in his life is not God's fault. God cannot be blamed for my sin any more than Mozart can be blamed for somebody misplaying his composition. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that. David says, I'm going to search for God. He says, uh, I, will remember, uh, I will remember the works of the Lord. I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also uh, of all thy work and talk of thy doings. You see, what he's doing, he's taking the attention away from himself and his own failures. He's looking away from that. To see the glory, the beauty, and the gracious stature of God himself. How did he come to that place? Because he was searching for the unsearchable God. I want you to see something else before we leave the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. That's one of our favorite chapters, right? Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort you, comfort you my people, right? We all know the first part of that, but listen to the last part of that chapter. He says in verse 28 in Isaiah chapter 40, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. There's no way to, to measure it. There, there's no way to quantify his understanding. And his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, and his might. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint and to them that have no might. He increases strength. Now this morning, if you're here and you feel that in your own soul, you feel your own inadequacy. Well, what you need to do this morning is look away from your inadequacy and insufficiency and look with faith. To the glory of the God of heaven. Because he's the one that gives strength. He's the one that gives forgiveness. He's the one that restores. He, he's the one that gives you the opportunity to play the note correctly. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, another very familiar verse. I know when my daughter was... Uh, Suffering with cancer, she had a T-shirt, uh, you know, Ashley's team. And, and on that shirt, she had uh, one of these verses in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. This is what God said to his people in Babylonian captivity, captivity. In verse 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give an expected end. She, she calls that her life verse. Because she said that no matter what happens to me, I know that that's, it's going to be well with my soul. 
Then shall ye call, listen to this, then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall uh, go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. I'll hear you. And ye shall seek me, now carefully watch this verse, and ye shall seek me and find me. When ye shall search for me with all your heart. See, it's a call to diligence, isn't it? it, it it's a call to uh, uh, an intentionality on our part. Uh, it, it's something that we can't remain passive in. It's something that we're called to active obedience to. To seeking God. Even though we know He's unsearchable. Even though we acknowledge that He's far beyond our capability to understand. Now, a lot could be said here. I'm going to have to really, really work not to go after those uh, thoughts. But remember what Jesus taught in John chapter 5, verse 20. John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to search the scripture. Because through the inscripturated word of God, we will find something this morning that is going to strengthen our faith. Something this morning that is going to give us power, uh, energize us, and, and maybe cause us to remember what David remembered about God. Even though I can't understand everything about what God is doing or what God is up to, I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to trust Him with all my heart. I, I, I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to trust Him for His grace. I'm going to trust him for his mercy. I'm, I'm going to trust him for his wisdom and his providential care over my life. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, for they are they which testify of me. One of the most beautiful commentaries on the Christian people of Berea in Acts chapter 17. Do you remember this? He said they were more noble than the Thessalonians. For they searched the scriptures daily. To see if these things were so. See there's a search going on. And it's a command. And we have to be intentional about it. And many of us in the church today have grown indifferent in so many areas of our life, to the responsibility we have to follow Christ, to follow God. We, we don't read our Bibles as consistently as we used to. We, we don't have the prayer altar in our own home like we used to. With the, the family gathering where we read the Bible together and have devotions together each day. We, we, don't, we don't do those things as consistently as we at one time did. 
And then we wonder why we don't experience the joy we did at one time. The peace, the satisfaction. It's not a new problem, friends. This morning I want to direct your attention to the church of Corinth. I want you to turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want, I want you to see something here. How, hmm, how, how very characteristic it is of Christians to fall into that category where they become indifferent to the Word of God, the, the teachings of God, and the, and the, uh, the uh, command to search after God. Remember, it was Jesus that said in Matthew 7, 7, Seek and ye shall find, ask and it shall be given unto you, knock and it shall be opened unto you. He, he made that promise. So we're going to search this morning, even though we understand that God, from a natural standpoint, God is unsearchable to us. We cannot comprehend all that God is. But watch, watch what happened in a church of the first century. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is laying out a very important principle in verse 18. He says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross. Now, let, let's remember contextually what Corinth was dealing with, what, what the Apostle Paul confronted in the first century. Remember, Corinth was a Greek city. They, uh, it was a city that had colleges, a city of great commerce, both from uh, the sea as well as the main trade routes went through Corinth. Corinth was on a peninsula. Um, and much could be said historically about Corinth. There were the Corinthian Games that were the, the offshoot of the Olympian Games. They, they uh, had a lot of philosophy, a lot of uh, education, a lot of what we refer to as culture. Uh, they had a lot of things going for it. They, one of the seven wonders of the world was Corinth, which was the Temple of Aphrodite, which was located on the top of uh, the Acropolis that overlooked the city of Corinth. Corinth was a huge city in first century t uh, 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 conditions. It was uh, ha uh, half a million people lived in Corinth in the first century. I mean, that was, that, that's, that's a lot of folks, especially uh, when you compare it to Faulkner, Mississippi. I mean, you know, a lot of folks. And, and they were very educated very cultural, uh, very uh, civil, had a, had a, a tremendous uh, form of government in Corinth, but they were very lost. They, there was a lot of wealth there, a lot of uh, population there, a lot of philosophy and education and, and business, but they were lost. They were lost. Because they didn't know Christ. So in Acts chapter 18, God sends this minister named Paul to the city of Corinth. Of all places, he would send him to this pagan city of idolatry. 
And what was he going to be there? What was he going to do there? Well, he was going to seek after social justice. He, he was going to seek to um, remediate the political structure of Corinth. No, that's not what he went there to do. He went there to preach Christ to them. And it appeared to be foolish. And the word foolish there comes from the Greek word uh, moron. They, they called Paul a moron. Foolish. Because he preached about God who came and died upon a cross to save people that didn't deserve it. Now you talk about moronic. That's the way they interpreted the message of Paul. Paul was preaching, faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, the cross of Calvary. And they, uh, they rejected that. Listen to this. And uh, he says for, it is written in verse 19, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. What Paul is doing is quoting Isaiah chapter 19 verse 12 and uh, chapter 29 verse 14. Um, and, and he's quoting it in the context of the invasion that Sennacherib made against Israel. Remember the days of Hezekiah when Sennacherib came against them and Hezekiah says, what are we going to do against this host? You know, Sennacherib, it was kind of humorous to me now. It wasn't humorous to them then, but it's kind of humorous, the thought process of Sennacherib because Sennacherib had this huge army and he surrounded the city of uh, Jerusalem that had a, a barely a tenth of the army size and strength of Sennacherib. Sennacherib says, I'll tell you what, Hezekiah, I'll even give you 2,000 horses if you can put soldiers on them. They, they were really beat down, right? And Hezekiah says, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? And the Lord said through Isaiah the prophet, he says, listen, I know he's got a lot on his, uh, a, a, a lot on the outside. He's got all of these men, all of these horses, all these chariots, all of these engines, battering rams, and they're all ready to go. But I want you to know not one arrow is going to land inside the city limits. Not one, not one life is going to be lost. Why? Because God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. You see, God's in charge. I can say that to America today. America's solution is not political. America's solution, I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is the only hope that America has to survive. Because God is going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the, prudent, the, the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Verse 20. Watch this. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? See, God is not the moron. The world is the moron. Satan is the moron. And those that follow Satan are moronical. He's just telling the truth about it. He says, but after, in verse 21, for after then the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. They knew him not by all of their wisdom and all of their wealth and all of their will power. Uh, they didn't know God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
To save who? To save everybody? No. Uh, them that believe. They're the ones that experience this salvation. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. This is their big issue. Remember, the Jews were always telling Jesus, show us a sign. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, Jesus goes over and he heals the leper. The Jews come to Jesus and say, show us a sign. Jesus walks on the water. The Jews come to him and say, oh, I know you walk on water, but show us a sign. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and raises the dead, and they still say, show us a sign. <laughs> Isn't that something? The Greeks seek after wisdom. That's their big issue, philosophy, right? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, a stumbling block, and under the Greeks, considered foolish. But under them which are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, this is a divine paradox. He's speaking rhetorically. You know, is, is there a weak part of God? No. No. Is uh, there a foolish part of God? A, a part of God that's not wiser than another part? No, that's rhetorical. But here's the paradox. How do we search for the unsearchable? See, that's the, that's the question that Paul is answering. How do we approach unto an unsearchable God? How do we begin to understand an unsearchable God? See, it is the unsearchable God that sent His Son into the world to make a way for us to know Him. Without the coming of Jesus Christ, we would not know Him. Why, Paul, dropping down for time's sake to verse 29, why would God do that? Why would this paradox exist in the mind of men? Verse 29, underscore the word that. That's a, uh, a, uh, a purpose statement. In, in other words, it could be read, so that. Why did God operate in this way in sending His Son to die upon a cross? Why would God do that? So that, verse 29, no flesh should glory in His presence. Th this was unthinkable to the Jew. This was untenable to the Gentile. It was something unacceptable in the social circles of Paul's day so that no flesh would glory in his presence. That's why. He's going to get all the glory for saving sinners. Watch this. But of him, verse 30, but of him, of God, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Man's wisdom did not produce, earn, or deserve salvation so that we can only boast in the mercy and grace of a covenant-keeping God. Chapter 2, verse 1, and 
conjunction. Same flow of thought. I, brethren, when I came among you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Now, when he says declare, that's an important thing. He's not just talking about a proclamation. When he uses the word declare, he's talking about to make manifest, um, to show you something that you didn't know before. He says, I came among you in this way, for I determined not to know anything among you. Now listen to what Paul said. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. Why wouldn't he say, I determined not not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him raised from the dead? Now he gets into that later, right? But what he's emphasizing here is the work of the cross. He, he, what he's emphasize, emphasizing here is how that mortal man is able to search for the unsearchable God. It's through the means of something that was so despised, something that was so misunderstood, uh, uh, so, something that was so distasteful to that culture in that day. As a Roman cross. Yet God chose that means. To make man. Acceptable to a holy God. See it's not the wisdom of men is it? It's, it's not according to the philosophy. And dictates of men or governments. It's by virtue of God's sovereign will. I determined to know nothing among you. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Apostle Paul was a man of the cross. The Apostle Paul understood what it meant um, to be crucified to the world and the world to me, he said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Many other references come to my mind this morning that declare the importance, the significance of the cross in the life of the Apostle Paul. Because he understood that it was through the means of the cross that he was able to have access and acceptability to God. Did you know that hasn't changed? It's still that way this morning. The only acceptability that we have with the Holy God is through the redemptive work of Christ upon the tree of the cross. That's why we can never not stop, we can never not preach the cross of Calvary. I know it's offensive to some, you know, some people get a little queasy when they think about a cross and so forth. But brothers and sisters, it's the heart of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, I'm going to boast, but my boast is in the Lord. I'm going to boast, but it's going to be in in the cross. He says in verse 3, I love this part of it. Here's his experience. He says "And I in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Why would he say that here? Because if you study Acts 16, 17, and 18, you realize that the Apostle Paul was beaten and imprisoned at Philippi. You realize that he was ran out of uh, Thessalonica and Berea. 
He was scoffed at and rejected at Athens. And then he comes over here uh, to Corinth. You can imagine. Uh, he comes to Corinth wondering what's going to happen here. You know, what's going to happen now? He was afraid. But if you study Acts chapter 18, God came to him in a vision in the night and said, Don't be afraid of them, Paul, because I have much people in this city. I brought you here to tell, to tell them about me. Don't be afraid. And he stayed there 18 months. He says, but boy, when I came to you, I came in fear. I came in trembling. He says in verse 4, and my, speech was my, uh, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit uh, and of power. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to see something with me. I want you to rejoice in something with me. How is it that we are able to search for the unsearchable God? Number one, we're going to see a demonstration. A demonstration of His power. A demonstration of His Spirit. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to see that. We're, we're going to see that it's not just a, a dry and empty lecture. It's not just words on the page of an old historic book. It's... It's more than that. It's the vital truth of God and, and what He accomplished for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a demonstration of spirit and of power. And it's not, number two point, it's not speculation. Listen to this, verse 5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak... Wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of the world, nor the princes of this world that come to nothing. In other words, it's not speculation. Somebody says, well, if, uh, it, you know, uh, it, it's, it's like, um, it, it's, it's like um, looking uh, at life through a bubble. Separate. Being able to see something but not being able to touch something. Being, being able to see activities, but not being affected by those activities. It's a bubble. It's a speculation. The Apostle Paul said, the truth of Christ is, and His kingdom is not like being in a bubble. But it is an individual, listen carefully, it is an individual being filled with the Spirit of God whose eyes are open, whose heart is open to the Word of God and, and, and the Spirit energizes the will of that individual to follow Christ. It's not speculation, it's participation. It's not speculation. It's participation. It's demonstration, participation. Watch this. I love this. This is, this is sound doctrine that you're hearing this morning. And I pray that you'll act on it. Listen to this. He says, um, verse 7, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, that um, mysterion, that, that which cannot be understood apart from divine revelation. We speak the, the truth, the wisdom of God in a mystery, something that is hid or veiled from the world, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, 
which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, and he's, uh, again, he's going to go all the way back to Isaiah 64, 4. As it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. I hath not seen. The natural eye cannot see it. The natural ear cannot hear it. The natural heart cannot receive it. Only the renewed heart. Only those that have been born of the Spirit will ever see it. As bad as we want everybody to see it. Oh, I would, would that everybody that in the state of Mississippi and Tennessee, even in our beloved country, even in the whole world, I would that everyone could see this and rejoice in it. But only those that have had their eyes, ears, and hearts opened by God will ever know it, will ever embrace it. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I got ahead of my third point, revelation. But God hath revealed them unto us. See, demonstration, participation, and revelation by His Spirit. He, uh, because the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. How? How? Do we search for an unsearchable God? We do so through the Spirit of God that He places within us. But God hath revealed unto us His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth. There's the word. Underline it there. Searcheth. Searcheth. All things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of man be within him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but by the Spirit of God. You see? Verse 12 says, Now we have received, here's my fourth point, inspiration. Inspiration. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given us of God. How do we know the things freely given us of God? It is through God's inspiration. He inspired the Word of God to be written. Do you understand that? This book, even though it was written through the instrumentality of men, it was written by God. God moved men to write these words. He inspired men. All scripture is given by what? Inspiration. God breathed this word into the souls of men and they wrote it down. How do we search for an unsearchable God? It's through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have received. Notice. We have received, not discovered. We have received. The Spirit is the one that teaches us through His Word. This is referring to the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.19-21. Hmm. Which things, verse 13, which things we speak not in the words of man's wisdom teach, but 
which the Holy Ghost teach, uh, comparing spiritual things to spiritual. And here's my final point. Illumination. Illumination. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. You hearing this? You hearing it? Man by nature doesn't have the capacity to receive it. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. And that's moronic. They're moronic to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually understood. The only way you can understand the Word of God this morning is to have the Spirit of God interpreting it to your hearts. That's the only way. So how are we this morning to search for the unsearchable God? Well, it's through the demonstration of the Spirit and power. It's through participation. Participation in praise and worship. Participation in And not just coming to church to fill a seat, but coming to church to be a part of the witness, the corporate praise and worship of the body of Christ. We're participators, not speculators. Demonstration, participation, revelation, inspiration, and then illumination. Illumination. We search for God in the scriptures. God's word is spiritually evaluated, appraised, and understood by the spirit of God within us. That's the only way it can happen. That's the only joy, peace, satisfaction that we'll ever experience in this life is when we understand how much we've been given. By this unsearchable God who says to your heart and mind this morning, seek me and you'll find. Ask of me and I'll give it to you. Knock on this door and I'll open it to you. May God bless these words to your comfort and strength today. Thank you for your good attention.